Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. We're in the midst of a uh, series of messages called Can I Ask That? Where we are answering questions biblically that you have been asking. And so um, for several weeks we've had cards where you can fill out questions to ask and that we've taken those cards, we've kind of compiled them, we've kind of put them into groups of what were the most uh, wanted questions, most asked questions. And this week we're going to tackle a particularly difficult topic. Several questions came in along the lines of, what does the Bible say about divorce and remarriage? Questions about that specifically Reference that way questions about how do I stay in a marriage that's difficult? What does God feel about me if I've remarried? What does God think about divorce? And as soon as I use the word divorce, a weight comes into the room. Like that's not a laughing, happy, enjoyable conversation. And the reason for that is every one of our lives in this room in some way has been affected by divorce. Either you have family that have been divorced, maybe your mom or dad were divorced, maybe you are divorced yourself and so it's impacted your family, you've got friends, you've got brothers, sisters, you've got people in your family, you've got co-workers, people in church, people that you're close to, maybe you've got people that you're close to that are considering it or thinking about it or talking about it. And even saying the word divorce brings up all kinds of emotions, all kinds of thoughts sweep across the room. The truth is, some of you are still in the midst of recovering from one, or you're in the midst of praying for someone that's going through that, or you're in the midst of considering it, or thinking about it, or you're in that life stage. One of the things I don't think we can do is we cannot overestimate the impact that divorce has had on our culture. And I don't think we can overestimate the impact that divorce has had on churches And on the life of Christians, specifically in our country. There are a couple of reasons for that. A couple of things that make me nervous about speaking about this subject. First is, it is so convenient today for divorce that divorce is more easily accessed than ever before. You can literally get online, minimal cost, hire somebody, work through the papers, through the internet, and make it happen. And part of the reason that as a pastor it's hard to preach about divorce is because part of my responsibility as your pastor is to shepherd you, to help to lead you, to guide you in what the Bible says. But in the midst of that, my prayer is is that I would never hurt you. And there are some of you today that when you talk about the issue of divorce, it is on edge. The emotions of it are right at your fingertips. It is right, you can feel it. And so today, I want us to avoid a couple of things. First of all, we are going to talk about it because sometimes churches just don't. They just say, you know what, we're not, we're not going to talk about it. It's a part of culture. But culture, having this so rampant within it, means that as a church, we have to speak towards it. And secondly, the thing I want to avoid, and if you're here today and you're already nervous because you're somebody that is divorced or is considering divorce or comes from a home that is divorced, I want you to understand that I'm not here today to judge or to, to I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to tell you it's the unforgivable sin. We're going to look at what the Bible says, and there probably are going to be moments of difficulty for you, but I hope in the midst of that we understand the grace that is there. 
And one of the basic understandings that we have to have whenever we come to a discussion about divorce or a family breakup or anything like that is that there are no perfect families out there. That, that's a good, I know it's a tense sermon. That's a good place for an amen, all right? There are no perfect families out there. Every family has problems. Every relationship has conflict. I remember when I'd been pastoring for like six months, and I, I thought that was the appropriate time to do a message series on marriage. Susan and I had been married for like three years at that time. We were experts, all right? And so I thought that was a great time to do a series on marriage. And I remember I was talking about things, and I said, how many of you as, as couples, how many of you married couples here have the occasional disagreement? And so, you know, hands went up. And I expected 100%. And there was a couple near the back that just sat there. They didn't raise their hands. And so after the sermon, they came up to me and they said, we just thought we would tell you, we don't ever fight. We've never fought in our entire married life. And my first thought was, liar. Like, that's not, that's untrue. Like, you, disagreements happen. Relationship conflicts happen. It's almost impossible for it not to happen. And it's almost impossible to prepare for it on the front end. That's what makes marriage so interesting is because none of us are the people we really are until we get married. Amen? Like when you're dating somebody, you're not who you really are. You're pretending, right? Putting your best foot forward. And that's what happens when you are dating. One of my, one of my favorite, um, when I do premarital counseling, one of my favorite part of that is we, we do this assessment and they take it individually and then we come together and we talk about the results. Or when I do marriage counseling, I do the same thing. And so what I love about it is there is this place in this test I use, it's called the prepare and rich test. There is a place that is called idealistic distortion. And it is how unrealistic are you about your relationship? And the goal is not to have a high score on that. And every couple that I have ever done premarital counseling for is off the charts with their idealistic distortion of what their marriage is going to be, including there are questions on there like this. And I'll give you this. You can think about it with your own spouse. You can answer it if you want to, or if you don't, you think it'll get you in trouble. That's fine. But it's one of the questions on there is everything I have learned about my spouse has excited me. Almost all premarital counseling, that's a strongly agree. Almost every marital counseling, that's a strongly disagree. Like it changes, right? Like before you're married, like, oh, I have not learned anything about him. That changes my heart. Like three months into marriage is like, what are you doing? Like who, you didn't tell me this was a part of the package. Like it happens. Conflict happens. And we handle conflict differently. I mean, there's some of you out there that are peacemakers, that when conflict happens, you just want to get it over with. Just smooth it over. Yeah, you're fine, fine, whatever, whatever, whatever you want, whatever you want. I'm fine, it's fine. Some of you are the stuffers. You cram that anger down. Is everything okay? Yes. I'm fine. Are you sure you're fine? I said I'm fine. Like you just stuff. Then you have the sulkers. You don't fight back. You just, by the way, just, I'm going to name some of these. It's probably not good to like to elbow your spouse when you hit theirs. Okay. That's probably not. I'm just giving you some, this is some free marriage advice. The sulker, you don't fight back. You just sulk. 
Try to subtly hint about what's really wrong with it. And when they don't pick up on your subtle hints, you sulk some more. All right. Some of you are the litigator. You are good at arguing. You want your spouse to see that you are never wrong and you have got the points to prove it step by step by step. It's not that you can't admit that you're wrong. It's that you legitimately feel that you are not ever wrong. And then the last one are the screamers. You just start yelling. And here's the thing. Usually, and this isn't always the case, but usually one of the rules of the universe is that you marry someone who is completely different in the way they handle conflict than you are. A peacemaker marries a screamer and they're ready to cast out demons when they start yelling at them. And what happens in marriage is when conflict comes, when difficulties arise, when situations develop, how we handle it determines the path that we go on. And when you don't handle that well, in our society in particular, it often ends in divorce. And so here's what I want to do today for the time we have left. I want to answer really two questions, and there'll be questions under the questions. But the two questions I really want to answer are, first of all, what does the Bible say about divorce? And we'll talk in a minute why we're fortunate in that area. And secondly, I want to talk about three very practical questions related to the issue of divorce. Now, when it comes to divorce, we're fortunate because some of the things that we're going to talk about over the next few days, some of the things that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks as we do this series of Can I Ask That? Some of those things are not directly addressed by Jesus or the Bible. And so we're having to pull information from four or five different spots and figure out the principles that are there and do heavy lifting and interpretation. But when it comes to the issue of divorce, Jesus was specifically asked about it. Matthew chapter 19. I've already asked you to turn there. Okay. If not, go to Matthew 19, all right? Matthew chapter 19, it tells us, when Jesus had finished saying these things, we'll talk about what these things are in a minute, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And so Matthew gives us this picture. Jesus is continuing on his journey, on his ministry. This is nearing the end of his life. This is nearing the last week of his life. And so he's teaching. The crowds are huge by now. He's healing people. They have heard about him. They're bringing the sick to him and he's walking through healing them. Next verse. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds. And so they come to Jesus and the Pharisees have tried this multiple times in multiple ways. They're saying, all right, Jesus, we're trying to trick you on a question. We're trying to get you on a question. And they say, what we need to know is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, Jesus said, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He says, haven't you read about what happened at the very beginning? God made a male and female and then he married them. He was the officiant of the first wedding. And he did that because he intended for them to be joined together and the two become one flesh. Remember what marriage is about. And then he says this. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together let no one separate. So they come to him and they say, Jesus, let me ask you a question. Can a man get a divorce for any reason? And he was like, wait a minute. 
Don't you remember what the idea was? The idea behind it all is God created marriage. And when God created marriage, he created male and female, one flesh, and that they were to stay together and were not to be separated. And they think they got him. Next verse. Why then? Because the greatest prophet of the Old Testament was Moses. And a trick would be, if you disagree with Moses, then you must not be on God's side. Why then, Jesus, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Why? And he had. Moses had said, when Moses takes a wife and marries her, he finds some indecency in her. He could divorce her. So they're like, gotcha, Jesus. You disagree with Moses. That's not what's happening. He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces a wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So here's what's going on. Rabbis at that time understood, the teachers of Jewish law understood, that there's a difference in a command in the law and a concession in the law. A command expresses God's heart. It shows what God desired from the beginning. And so what Jesus quotes from Genesis 2 is a command of God. A concession is something God allowed because of our fallen condition in order to keep peace in society at various levels of spiritual maturity. And so he commanded man and woman to stay together in marriage for life. He conceded, had a concession with Moses that allowed for divorce. The Pharisees knew that. Many of the rabbis at the time taught the difference in command and concessions. But here was the trap. And what Moses said, Moses said that a man could divorce his wife for something indecent. And nobody knew what that meant. It was a strange Hebrew word. It was unclear. Even people who spoke Hebrew didn't know what it was. And so two groups of people formed. There was Rabbi Shammai's group. You don't have to remember all this, all right, but... At least act like you're listening. All right. Rabbi Shammai. And he said something indecent only was sexual indecency. That Moses was saying if a man discovered his wife had been sexually unfaithful, then Shammai said that is the only reason you can get a divorce. Then on the other end of the spectrum was Rabbi Hillel. He said indecent meant anything you didn't like about her. Indecent behavior, indecent cooking skills, indecent morning breath, it didn't matter. And I'm not joking about that. We have his writings that were said where he said that if she consistently burns the bread, you may divorce her. If you fall out of love, you may divorce her. If you fall in love with someone else, you may divorce her. If the smell emanating from her mouth is not pleasant, you may divorce her. And so you had one guy that says only sexual impropriety. You had another guy that says whatever you don't like. And so the question for Jesus was not just what do you believe, but where do you fall? Are you conservative or are you liberal on this? Now, here's the thing. Jesus has got huge crowds. Most of those crowds were people that had aligned themselves with the anything goes. Very few of them align themselves with sexual immorality only. 
They knew that if Jesus said what they thought he would say, he would alienate 70% of his crowd. It was a political question to trap him. Aren't you glad we don't have those anymore? Where you get asked a question to see where you end up on the political spectrum. I don't know if you saw somebody's in trouble about that right now, currently. Somebody you wouldn't expect to be in trouble about that. I know you'll keep up with Kanye West and all that's going on in his life. Kanye apparently tweeted out a couple of days ago his support of the way a conservative African-American woman thinks. Now, I don't know anything about the woman. I don't know if she's good to follow. I don't know any of that. What I know is almost immediately upon tweeting that, people started barraging him from all sides. Suddenly, the conservatives think Kanye West is the greatest thing that has ever lived. And people on the left are like, what he has left us, he has gone, what, what is going on with that man? And all because of one tweet. And if you've ever read any of the Kanye's tweets, they don't make any sense. The same kind of thing. Yes, I just did compare Kanye West and Jesus, but not in a way that way, all right? It's the same thing for Jesus. Where do you stand, Jesus? Are you on the right or the left? Well, here's the thing. When Jesus gives his answer and he says, except for sexual immorality, he marries another, he commits adultery. He didn't line up with either one of them. He went more conservative than the guy that was the most conservative. That's not to say that Jesus is conservative like that on every single issue. But on this point, his answer puts him farther away. But the basis of his answer is, That you're asking the wrong question. Because he says that when you talk about divorce, you must first talk about marriage. And when you get to marriage, you go back to the very beginning and you see the intention of marriage from the very beginning was that God intended for marriage to be for life. One man, one woman together for life. That in what happens in marriage is God fuses two lives into one flesh. Your finances become one. Your bodies and emotions become one. Your families and your futures become one. It's designed, Paul says, to demonstrate the Trinity. And you can't just walk away from that kind of relationship. It's not a contract where you negotiate terms and you have an opt-out clause. It's a fusion of your life into their life and you form a new entity. He says, whatever therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, the difference between what was going on in their society, what goes on in our society, is that some people, even in their society, were viewing marriage as a consumer relationship instead of a covenant relationship. And a consumer relationship is where you figure out what works for you, what you need, what best meets those needs, and then you give yourself to that. And consumer relationships aren't necessarily bad in other areas of life. I mean, I have a consumer relationship with my grocery store. Like, I go to a certain grocery store because it's more convenient for me, because I like the way it's laid out. The help they give is absolutely unparalleled in my sense because it's my store. And if I want to get a movie for the family on the way out, there's a red box at the door. But if they build a grocery store closer to my house that has friendlier people and better prices, then I'll go to that grocery store. It's a consumer relationship. 
Maybe you're a guy that drinks coffee and you drink the same coffee all the time. And then you go to the store one day and you see that they've got this higher price coffee on sale. And you think, well, since it's on sale and it's cheaper than my normal coffee, I'll buy the higher price coffee on sale. You get it, you take it home and you say, I'm never drinking that other coffee again. It's a consumer relationship. Whatever works for you now, whatever works for you best, you take control of that. And that's the way a lot of people view marriage. But there are covenant relationships in our lives, including marriage, that you can't treat that way. We know that about some relationships. I'm not going to do that with my kids. I'm not going to say to Luke, man, Luke, this just isn't working out for me. It's not you, Luke. It's not you. It's me. It's me. been hanging out with some of the other neighborhood kids, and I just have determined that I'm happier with them. And so, Luke... Um, I'm not going to do that, right? Nobody's going to make that argument. Because your relationship with your kids is not a consumer relationship. It's a covenant relationship. It's the same kind of relationship that marriage is. According to Jesus, marriage is a covenant. Two become one. So the question becomes, okay, so is divorce ever acceptable? Based on what Jesus says, is divorce ever acceptable? And he gives us a couple of reasons here, and I want to tell you why. I think it's important to understand why. He says, Jesus says, that divorce should not happen unless adultery is in the picture. And the logic of this is very important because adultery kills the covenant. When someone unites themselves to another person sexually, they have destroyed the covenant with you. It's the same reason that if a spouse dies, that you are free to remarry. Because when the spouse died, the covenant ended when that spouse died. When adultery happens, the person committing adultery breaks the covenant relationship and kills it. You say, well, what about, is that it? Is that all? Well, Jesus says only adultery. Paul adds one to the list in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. It's going to seem kind of confusing. I'm going to try to walk us through it, but I want you to understand what's happening here. What's happening is Paul is writing to a church in Corinth where lots of people were were married people who came to church, were saved, and as they were saved, their spouses were not, and were giving them grief about it. And so some of them were like, you know what? It'd be better if I just divorce my unbelieving spouse so I can live a Christian life completely because they're really bringing me down. And Paul says in verse Corinthians 7:10, to the married, I say, and then he says, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate, or that is the same word for divorce, her husband. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to the husband. Husband should not divorce his wife. If any woman had a husband who is an unbeliever and he will live with her, then she should. Then he gives the reason why. He says, because the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And so he says, first of all, here's what I want to tell you. If you can stay together, stay together. And he says, part of the reason for that is, you may be, when he talks about that whole holiness thing, he's saying that as the believer in the relationship, you may be the one that is able to lead your spouse to the Lord. Secondly, even if you're not able to lead your spouse to the Lord, your kids need to see the influence of your life in their lives on a daily basis as the believer. Stay. Whenever I read this passage, one of the first people I think of just automatically almost is a guy named Lee Strobel. 
Maybe you know Lee Strobel, maybe you've heard of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel is a guy that um, has written Case for Christ. In fact, they made a movie out of that you know, about his life of the Case for Christ, the Case for the Creator, the Case for Faith. He's written those books. He's an investigative journalist. And before he became a believer, he was an investigative journalist in the crime division of the Chicago Tribune. And his wife became a believer before he did. She went to church, she started following Christ, and he decided he was going to prove her wrong, and he decided he was going to investigate it again and again. But the thing that kept drawing him back to even thinking about investigating, he says, was that his wife was so changed by her commitment to Jesus. And as he followed her, and as he followed the trail of evidence, he himself gave his life to Jesus. So Paul says, listen, if you can stay together, stay together. And then he says this, but if, if, If the unbelieving spouse leaves, divorces, let it be. And in that case, you are free. Not mound means that you're able to go. You are not obligated by that relationship again. You are able to go. The same logic Jesus used. The covenant stands until it has been killed. And when it has been killed, you are free. Some people say, is that it? Well, what about some particular instances that also happen that aren't covered by these two specifically? What about someone that finds themselves in an abusive situation or finds someone in a place where there's illegal activity going on that's putting the family in danger? The first thing I would say is if that's happening in your house, if there is physical danger, if there is illegal activity leading to danger, the first thing you got to do is you got to get out of the situation. Get distance. As far as divorce, most scholars and myself believe that the logic that Paul and Jesus use here allow for divorce when there is, when there is abuse or illegal activity that is endangering the family. Now that doesn't mean they just got annoying or they've changed or it's not doing it for me, but they've killed the covenant through adultery or abuse or illegal activity. And here's what I would tell you. In any of those situations, if adultery or abuse or desertion, abandonment, or any of those are there, divorce is only to be pursued under close advisement of Christian counselor, of friends that are within the church that have a biblical worldview. And this is the point that Jesus is making and Paul is making. That from the beginning, God established marriage as a covenant Between two people becoming one. And the idea literally is that divorce should be as radical as amputating an arm or a leg. Now sometimes amputations are required. But if you go to the doctor with a hangnail and they tell you to cut your arm off. You're going to wonder about some things. Right? If you don't, you're a little too trusting. Okay? If you sprained your ankle and the doctor said, just cut that thing off, or you got some freckles or varicose veins, let's just get rid of those, get rid of the whole leg. Amputation is the last thing you do. And the scripture says and describes it as, when two become one and you pulled apart, separated, there will be ramifications for life on that. So three questions to end. All right, pastor, I hear that. How do I stay in a difficult marriage? How do I continue to stay in a marriage that is hard? The first thing I would say to that is remember that only God can truly satisfy you. 
There is no perfect person or match that's going to make you happy or right. Now, our society teaches us that, that the right person is out there for you. And if you, good marriage is determined by finding the right person. And if you get to marriage and you're not happy, then it must be there's somebody else out there. You didn't get your right person. You didn't meet your soulmate. TV shows are out there where you line up 30 people, 25 people, and you decide which one of them you like best this week and give them a flower. And they come back next week. And the whole goal is to find the right person. And you know what? If you find the right person and then you figure out between the time that you found the right person and the show aired that you might not have found the right person, you dump the right person on national TV and give the rose back to the one that you dumped to go with the right person to begin with. I don't watch The Bachelor, but it's hard to escape it in the news. Which means a lot of you are. And it's the way society makes it sound. Just find the right person. You just haven't found the right one yet. What we have to remember is that only God is the right one. He is the only one that can satisfy you. And we have to remember the purpose in marriage is not to be happy. God did make marriage to make us happy. He made us to be more like Jesus. He made it for us to be an example to the world. God's main purpose, Gary Thomas said, in marriage is not to make you happy by uniting you with a perfect person, but to make you holy by teaching you to love like him. Now, I want to tell you, that doesn't mean you can't genuinely be in love. Susan and I will be married 20 years this summer, and I love her with all of my heart. I am genuinely in love with my wife. But marrying someone new will not fix whatever is going on in your life. The problem in your life, if you're in a marriage that's difficult, is not somebody else is out there. And so you got to remember, God is the only one that can satisfy. The second thing is to seek Him. To seek the Lord. It's used a lot, but it is so true, the triangle illustration, that if you and your spouse are at odds, that the closer you move to the Lord, the closer you become to each other. Now I want to tell you that in that perfect picture, it shows two people going up at the same time right to the top. But the reality is most times in marriage, it's one person going slowly and the other person going fast. And then that person starts to speed up and this person goes a little slow. It's not like you're usually completely entwined together going towards God at the same speed. But the point is, no matter what speed you're going at, when you're going towards the Lord in that illustration, you're going towards your spouse. It may look like an isosceles triangle sometimes. I thought there were, you told me there wasn't going to be math today. It's not going to be an equilateral, but it may be, it may be acute. It may be that you're going across right here and they're barely. Or if your spouse is like, I'm walking away from the Lord, here's the cool thing. That as they're walking away from the Lord, you're still getting closer. You're not letting them leave. Seek God. And then extend grace. Someone has said that if we would oftentimes think about Jesus standing behind our spouse, we would realize that the person in front of us may not deserve forgiveness or grace, but Jesus has already given it to us. You know, that's a little bit of a stretch. Why why does that matter here? Because if you look at the chapter right before Matthew 19, and Matthew puts these together in a certain order. If you look at the chapter right before Matthew 19, at Matthew 18, the end illustration there, the end parable there, is the story where someone says, how many times should we forgive someone? And Jesus says, 70 times 7. And then he tells the parable about the unforgiving servant who had a debt that he could not pay at all, that was exorbitant, that was like 10 years of pay. 
And he goes and the guy says, you're forgiven. And he runs out the door, finds a guy that owes him a few dollars and puts him in jail. And in the story, you and I are the man with 10,000. And when we're dealing with our spouse, when it comes to our forgiveness that is required for our spouse, it is but a small penance of what God has already forgiven us. No matter how egregious the sin. So extend grace. By the way, I think this is very important to say, and I probably should have said it a little earlier, but Jesus, when he says, when a man divorces a wife except for adultery, he is not saying that when adultery exists, you have to divorce your wife. He is giving the option for grace and mercy to be in there and to offer it. Some of you may remember a few, it's been about a year and a half ago now, that we had the Ryans come and speak to us. And I had lunch with... Um, breakfast with Robbie this week. We do breakfast on a regular occasion. And it is always encouraging me to me to hear how their marriage has been restored in the midst of terrible sin on his part. Some great marriages come because of restoration that happens and the grace that is extended. So if you're living with a difficult marriage, remember that God is the only one that can satisfy. Seek him. Go after him. Extend grace to the other ones. And then two more things. Consider others in your circle. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 is all about that. For the benefit of others, for the benefit of your children, for the benefit of your spouse, consider staying together. You may have heard these statistics or you may not want to hear them, but the truth is that children of divorced parents are four times more likely to have social problems, two times more likely to drop out of school, three times more likely to have psychological help needs, and five times more likely to have inability to keep a job. I also want to tell you this, that God is completely gracious. And he can restore and recover any family. And sometimes when a preacher gets up here and talks like this, and you know that Susan and I have been married for 20 years, and obviously divorce is not a part of our lives, you think, well, do they understand? And the truth is, I don't have a lot of real close association with it, but what I do have is a family that has been restored even after divorce. And so both my mom and dad have been married now for 40, almost, almost will be 44 years this year. But before they married each other, they were married to two other people. They both divorced. Mom had a child out of that divorce. And then mom and dad married. Now, most people that know my family have no idea that that is a part of our background. In fact, some of you have known me for 11 years or are finding that out at this particular moment. Because God has restored it. And there are some examples in this room of families that have been restored even in the midst of divorce. And so it's not the end. My point is that if you can stay together, if it's possible as you seek God, then you do. It's also part because it's part of our example to the world. And the world needs to see patience, steadfast, never-ending love. And so how do you stay in a difficult marriage? You consider the others that are going to be impacted by your decision. And then the last thing is, is get help. Find a group of people that speak in a worldview that is Christian, a group of small group here at the church, a Sunday school or small group of people that can support you and encourage you. Seek out good biblical counseling. If you, by the way, let me give you a test. If you go to a counselor, you go to a a trained counselor and they tell you on the second meeting that divorce needs to be something you're seriously considering, find another counselor. Go to somebody that's going to give it a chance, that's going to help you to figure it out. Second question. Some of you here, sin messed everything up. It's going on downstairs. 
It's true. That's the whole point of the, what we're talking about here. We're going to, second question. Okay, so divorce happened. Can I remarry? Here's the truth. And these last two will be quick. When divorce is legitimate, remarriage is an option, but is not a requirement. First Corinthians chapter seven says that singleness can be a gift. In fact, Paul says it may be better for you. There's some of you in this room that have never been married and you're thinking about that and that whole thing about I'm looking for the right person and figuring all that out. Perhaps what is intended is that God for this season or for your life has said that it's better for you, more beneficial for the kingdom of God, more beneficial for you to stay single. It is a gift. We've done a poor job as a church in general, not just our church, but churches in general of making that sound as if it is not something that God would intend for somebody, but it may be. In fact, Jesus talks about that in just a few verses after where we ended. And you have to look down there. But in verse 12, he says, For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. He says there are people that are never intended to be in a relationship. And he talks about eunuchs. And if you don't know what eunuchs are, you can ask Jeff after the service. All right. But eunuchs are people that, he says, there are three ways that it happened. One, they're physically incapable. They're born that way. Secondly, through injustice done to them. Even like, and you're thinking about symbolically through a divorce or they choose it for a season. And the reality is that what he's saying is you don't have to rush into anything. In fact, if you're considering remarriage after divorce, I would ask you to think of two questions. And these are from, from places I've looked, from, from research. These two questions come up time and time again. The first question is, have you given time for your previous marriage to be restored? It's amazing how quickly sometimes people jump from one to the other. From one relationship and divorce to another relationship. And the second question is, have you given yourself time to be healed? Have you sought counseling? Have you sought friends? And here's the last question we're going to talk about today and then we're going to be done. How does God view me if I'm divorced and remarried? And some of you here, you may have not heard much anything else or you may have been mad at me at certain points. I want you to hear this. If you're divorced, remarried, I want you to hear this specifically today. If you, it is, that is who you are. It is not the unforgivable sin. And what I would say to you is what I would say to anybody else in this room, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That if you believe in him, you should not perish, but have everlasting life. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. He bore our sins on the cross and he rose again from the grave to pay the penalty for every sin that you would commit in your life. No matter what you did, no matter if you got out too early, no matter if you've made terrible mistakes, it's true. And I can't help but think of how he restores people in miraculous ways. I think about the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, if you're a Bible student, you grew up in going to vacation Bible school, well, probably not like young kids. They probably didn't tell this story a whole lot, but teenagers and up. David and Bathsheba, right? David is there, sees Bathsheba out bathing. She's married to another man. They commit adultery. He then murders the husband so that he can cover over his adultery. And a year later, David, reminded of what happens, he comes before the Lord. He cries out to him. He confesses his sin and asks for forgiveness, and God does. God doesn't just offer forgiveness. He restores the relationship and blesses it. Solomon is born. And Solomon would have a child who 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 would have a child. So on and so on until you get to a time when the child born from that line is named Jesus. And what is amazing about that story is 
that God included in the line of his son, a man and a woman that committed adultery while she was married and then murdered the husband to cover it up. He can restore anyone if you'll trust him. We're going to have a time of response. And it's kind of a strange message to respond to. But maybe the Lord has laid on your heart something you need to respond to. What I want to do here is I'm going to be standing down front. And maybe you're here and there's somebody you want to pray for. And you want to come and pray here at the altar. You want to ask God to heal a marriage. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's somebody else's marriage. Maybe it is that you have been feeling like... Is it worth fighting for? And you just want to pray. Maybe where you are or you're coming forward. Maybe you want to talk to me about it. Ask for some advice about some people to go talk to. Maybe you're here today and you realize that you've been trying to find satisfaction in other relationships instead of the Lord. And today you just want to say, I want to seek God and seek him alone. We're going to have a time of response after I pray. And I'm just going to ask you to come and do whatever the Lord calls you to do. Let's pray together.